Hello and welcome. Back with my co-host Peter Linus, I'm Jay Frost and this is Being Human. And it's great to be back. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. It's been a long time since we did this podcast. November 21 was the last time we got an episode out. Isn't that mad? That is mad. That's the last time we spoke to each other. (laughs) Oh, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not like we've been doing nothing in between. Um, We have actually co-written the book. Nearly. I I highly recommend the process. Yeah, we've nearly killed each other. But hey, we're still talking to each other. We've done some videos, we've done lots of things, but more on that to come as we unpack this series. Indeed, because we are back, we are asking the same question that we've been asking all the way along in different ways and in different guises. What does it mean to be human? We've been at this for a few years now, and yet we still see this question bubble up everywhere we go. Everywhere. I was running just yesterday on our podcast and somebody just asked exactly this question. Every time I listen to a podcast, it feels like somebody asked this question. Every time I read a book, it feels like this question is there, either explicitly or implicitly. Every time I'm watching like some terrible uh, box set on Netflix, some emotional moment comes up with this. What am I doing with my life? What does it mean to be human? This is what it means to be humans. Everyone's offering either the question or a supposed answer as we explore this issue. It's the story that is absolutely everywhere. On that note, where are you? See, like apart from box sets, where are you seeing this question bubbling up? Where's the biggest place since we last talked that you're saying that what does it mean to be human question? Well, I think I think I would say that we are seeing some big stories pop up. So yes, we've been gone for a couple of years. Last time we were still massively in COVID. We were just coming out of lockdowns. We were still trying to work out what the new normal was. That big storyline was affecting so many of our interactions, so much of our understanding. We're in a new world now, but we still have these big, big stories. And I suppose the biggest story that is impacting at least our culture at the moment is probably war in Europe, Russia invading Ukraine. Um, we are coming into what, 18 months of conflict there now. I, we have so many questions around sovereignty, around freedom, and even just around the news. We've got some Belarusian friends here and they were watching as the kind of the conflict was about to kick in. And we were hearing Putin's planning to invade and they were hearing this is just Western hype. This is Western propaganda. They're like, it's not true. You're being lied to. The BBC's lying to you. Blah, blah. It's never going to happen. Their whole premise of where they trust and what where they get their news from crumbled the moment they saw those tanks cross that line. They just couldn't understand it. They were absolutely stunned. It was it was really quite a seismic moment in going, actually, who is telling me the truth? What is the truth to tell in my news? What does it mean to put our faith in what we're being told and how we operate and Friendships. I mean, again, in Eastern Europe, those borders mean very little. You, the Polish, Belarusian and Russian spaces plus Ukraine, they're so intermixed. And now it's so complicated. Neighbours, friends, families are all being torn apart on this idea of where do the lines get drawn when who counts, who matters, who's important. It's a massive, massive thing. 
Yeah, and a real information, disinformation, misinformation war on a whole new level. I mean, even we had that kind of uh, coup. Was it a coup? <laughs> the Wagner kind of revolt over that the summer. That was so like, weird. It was the weirdest day. You're kind of following this, or I certainly was, as a bit of a news channel going, what, what is happening? Is this, is this for real? What did happen? We still don't really seem to understand like what was happened. Was it a stunt? Why isn't he dead? Like, the just doesn't make any sense. And it goes to the whole core of that, yeah, that that kind of information war that's being fought. So there is a war. There are lives being lost. There is a traditional war. It's trench warfare. In some senses, is back to kind of World War II style war. And yet also at the same time is this massive misinformation, disinformation war that Russia is so good at. And it causes chaos right at its roots. And you don't know what to believe. We don't know what's true. We don't know what's going on. And it's actually a symptom of a wider conversation we're having in almost every sphere. What's true? What can I believe? And chaos. I mean, for goodness sake, even in our own little country, the UK, political chaos has reigned over the last couple of years. What was it? Three prime ministers in as many months? Liz versus the lettuce? I mean... (laughs) It's just been bonkers. But again, who's in power? How does somebody use that power? Does one rule count for one person, but not for another? How do we hold people to account? We've had strikes. We've had so many different upheavals going on in our country over the last couple of years that it feels quite tense, actually, which it hasn't felt for a while. Yeah, no, I mean, linked with the cost of living crisis, which links both Ukraine and the political crisis. And it's this kind of permanent state of crisis that we are in. Is it just a never ending? It feels like every day you read the news headlines, it's another crisis. And we just stick the label crisis on it. They've got this phrase, the perma crisis. We are in a permanent state of crisis, which is a really unhealthy state to live in. We just feel like we're on edge. We're anxious all the time. And that fundamentally undermines, again, what it is to be human. It's dehumanizing us. Because you pull in one thread, it links to another thread, links to another thread, because we're such an interconnected, hyperconnected world. And so we've got not only a perma crisis, but what they call a poly crisis. Like these are all linked crises and you just can't get away from it. Honestly, I was listening to one podcast and it was just going through like the five biggest issues facing Rishi Sunak and his government at the moment. And they just started spending five minutes talking about why each of these problems were completely intractable and totally unsolvable. By the end of the 30 minutes, I was so fundamentally depressed. It's like, nothing can be fixed. How do we even fix any of them? Because as soon as you pull on one, like you said, the, the rest of the problems come up. Is it climate change causing a cost of living crisis? Is it cost of living causing inflation? Is it inflation causing strikes? Everything is interlinked. Um, so how do you ever start to solve and unpick any of these issues? Because they all seem to come as a block. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's really, really challenging. And then, you know, you've named some pretty like current, in a sense, political and global crises. And, and for me, the big story is probably around like artificial intelligence and some of the moves on that. You had some of the biggest proponents of it saying, we need to pause. We don't have the ethics of this resolve. We don't know where it's going. And so AI feels like this undercurrent that's bubbling along in behind these things. Absolutely. And we've been talking about it for a while now, haven't we? And yet it sort of exploded with chat GBT, GPT. GPT. Oh, for goodness sake, too many acronyms. Um, it just exploded. And yet, and there are so many uh, warnings and caveats and uncertainty and I was saying to a friend of mine, it feels like we're in the flashback of the Matrix movies. Like we're at the beginning of this dystopian world where the robots are going to overtake us. Um, 
But I said it as I was coming out of the ABBA Voyage concert, which is, again, this kind of AI, um, hyper-reality, weird 90 minutes of staring at a screen, but your brain telling you absolutely loudly screaming at you that there is somebody real stood in front of you and there isn't. It is, it's basically, a, a, it's not quite a hologram, but it's a computer generated image on a screen. And yet every bit of your senses is telling you that there is somebody stood straight in front of you. It's the weirdest experience. Is, and we, we are struggling in our minds just to comprehend that, the visuals of something like ABBA, the kind of one trillion variables that are behind these things in chat GPT. Nearly everybody seems to have had a go at putting something into the system, ask it a question, get its answer to something. You can, you can get it to write a sermon. You can get it to sort out all your church messaging on the one hand. You can ask it life's big questions. You can do all sorts of things on it. We're going to be out of a job soon. But yeah, you can get it to write a podcast script for you and uh, write a book for you. And and that that's just the language model. Large language model is one of them. There's the art or the design one, you know, DALI and different things. And it's it's its ability to be, we listened to this guy, John Wyatt, a friend and, and a professor who's looked at this area. You know, it's a parasite on human knowledge. It's kind of piggybacking on our understanding of meaning. Like, so you've got all these questions. Will there be any new meaning? It'll take all the current meaning and it'll give you an answer. It's trying to communicate with us and give us a sense of meaning meaning, but can it do that? Like it's, yes, it can take our language, but can it communicate? And where does this go to the boundaries of what it means to be human? It's fascinating because communication is so at the heart of what it means for us to be human beings. You know, God spoke us into being. Language has, has incredible significance in the biblical text. The first attack comes in Genesis 3 on the words. Did God really say the lying, the twisting of the words? So to get in behind language and meaning is like so central to who we are and what it is to be human. It's just fascinating. And does communication even count if the words aren't coming from a heart, they're coming from an algorithm, they are basically translations of mathematical equations? What does communication, intimacy, relationship, reality look like when it is a probability expression rather than something coming from a soul, uh, something coming from a living being? And because our brains don't know how to distinguish those two things. Like I said, standing in front of Abba, my brain was screaming at me, this is real. And I was trying to override it and tell it, no, it's not. We have none of those capabilities of understanding language, meaning, reality, truth, because they're designed to trick us. They're designed to fake it. That's misinformation, disinformation, or at least skewing of information. As a piece I was reading about the necessity for AI to be embodied because embodiment is so important. Back to your hologram, to ABBA, like bodies matter. Like where does the personhood boundary begin to come for an AI? Bits of AI will be implanted into human beings. At what point does an AI become human or a human become AI? Like these are where the questions that we've been asking around significance and connection, human dignity, all really come into play. So, like absolutely fascinating. There's loads more stories we could talk about. We didn't even get to trans and what is a woman to being debanked and do you need to be in the banking system to be a human being? We could go on at this forever and a day probably, but we probably need to drive on forward because for us, this is where the story clashes are occurring relentlessly. This is millions of micro stories bumping into each other. And I think we're all feeling 
that whatever we believe individually as people is bumping into the next person every day. We seem to read the news and feel it's jarring with our understanding of the world. And we're just feeling this relentless clashing. Exactly. And I think I think that is what we've noticed over the last couple of years as we've dug deep into some of these foundational stories that we've been looking at as we've been developing our understanding of what it means to be human from being human project's perspective, but also every single day being confronted with these stories clashing and bumping into each other, these personal stories, these micro stories, these little mini narratives. And yet they all are trying to come up with this idea of what does it mean to be human? Who am I? How do we relate to each other? What's what's a good life? Do I matter? Does that person matter more? All of these things are building this overarching cultural narrative that is feeling very complex, but also very fragmented and very fragile. So one of the analogies that we've used, we've thought about is Jenga, the Jenga blocks, (laughs) because people can see it, they can understand it. And we actually have a physical set of Jenga blocks. My kids and I painted over this one of those in three different colors. So we, we've imagined a set of Jenga blocks, three different colors um, in those blocks being built up uh, to try and unpack some of these cultural stories. Because while there are literally millions of micro stories, in a sense, we still want to say, look, there probably are three major underlying stories that we can possibly relate to and maybe help understand and navigate some of what's going on. So in our massive game of Jenga, right at the bottom is a set of blocks related to the secular story story that, that, you know, there is no God. 500 years ago, unthinkable to believe in God. Today, almost unthinkable to believe in God. Did I get that the right way around? So 500 years, almost unthinkable not to believe in God. Today, almost unthinkable to believe in God. Believe in God is quaint. It is naive. It's it's kind of old fashioned, uh, but we've developed beyond it. It doesn't really doesn't really count anymore. That's sort of the secular vibe now, isn't it? Yeah. And it's not just there is no God. That's too simple a, a kind of picture, isn't it? The, a wonderful guy called Charles Taylor wrote a very complicated book that nobody seems to have read, but everybody seems to summarize. But is it like belief is up for grabs? That's the secular moment, really, in a sense that all beliefs are contested. They're fragile. They're, they're kind of pushed and pulled around. And when I speak to Christians, they often say, oh yeah, we, we are the ones under pressure. And it's like, hold on. J.K. Rowling and Richard Dawkins aren't getting a free ride either. They're getting pushback. We're all getting pushback. Nobody's beliefs get a privileged position every morning. Everybody's beliefs get kind of pulled and pushed around. And that for me is the kind of heart of that secular story. As you say, the transcendent and the kind of overarching stories are pushed away. And so everybody has to navigate this really contested, fragile moment. It's putting questioning and doubt at the center of our stories. The idea that if you don't believe in God, you're being tempted to believe. We're seeing rises in prayer, openness to spirituality, openness to coming to church, curiosity that maybe there is more is really loud. But at the same time, believers are tempted to doubt. We have this built-in questioning around our faith and around the validity, because as we've been saying all the way through, even just this episode, we are constantly being asked to question who and what we put our trust in. And that makes the foundation of our stories incredibly fragile. Yeah. So the good news is that doubters are tempted to believe. That's really interesting. There's an openness to the transcendent, but the challenge is believers are tempted to doubt. And 
it's just that's just a description of reality. We're not saying it's good or bad. That's just the secular space we live in. So that's our that's our base blocks on our Jenga tower. Um or tar, as I'd like to say, being from Northern Ireland, but anyway, that's me behaving myself. Okay, so we've got the base blocks around the secular story. Next up is expressive individualism. It's yes. all about you, Joe, so you tell us about that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's also all about you, Peter. Mm. Um, so no, it really when... is all about me. Me. <laughs> so when we take out some kind of objective authority out of our lives, we don't put our trust in God or in the church or in some kind of state religion, when everything gets questioned, the only thing left to rely upon is ourself. We actually turn inward because everything else is questioned. Everything else is vulnerable. So we turn inward and we start to look for our own authenticity. We start to look for our own truth. We start to express ourselves out into the world and it turns into this kind of self-projection and self-sufficiency where either I earn it, I earn my credibility from others saying, yeah, you're great or no, you're rubbish. Think America's little monologue in Barbie about women not being good enough. It's that kind of narrative. Or it's the girl bossing main character energy push yourself into your world and just declare, I am me. I'm going to be it. I'm going to express myself and project myself out into the world. And if anybody's got a problem with that, the problem's on them, not on me. Yeah. So it's the stories of the self. I, me, the self is the primary unit of concern. Meaning is found in giving expression to my feelings and my desires. I need to be authentic to who I am. And so we turn inwards, then we're authentic as we live that out. And it leads to a very consumerist kind of society where I'm going to pick and choose who I want. I'm going to pick and choose the bits that I like and build them all together. And so we have expressive individualism as the middle blocks in our tower. And then finally, at the very top of our tower, well, not quite finally, but the third major story we want to talk about is the, is the postmodern story, a story really of deconstruction. You have your truth, Joe, I have my truth. And we have our different truths and we see our own stories. And it's a kind of fragmented, deconstructed world because we all have our own truths. And so it's this wariness around institutions, around outside authority oppressing or repressing us. So school is no longer a place where you learn to conform, but school is a place where the child is given a stage and a nurturing space to discover themselves and express themselves freely. We find ourselves in a space where authority, institution, any voice of power is meant to lift somebody up. And if there's any shackles, history, heritage, parenting, religion, anything that is deemed to be pulling us down or preventing that self-expression and self-authenticity, that needs to be deconstructed. So everything gets pulled down so that I myself may be elevated up. So we deconstruct anything normal, marriage, family, the binaries of male and female, you start deconstructing sex and gender. And of course, there are things that need to be deconstructed. There was a kind of false certainty from the Enlightenment science that all the answers, everything was fine. There were power structures and hierarchies that actually needed to be pushed back, and rightly so. But when you start to take that out to its extreme, what's left in a post-truth world? 
And so we want justice, but to get to justice, you actually do need truth. So my favorite, this is, you know, as a former lawyer, I want to imagine that court case recess where to tell the truth, my truth, and nothing but my post-truth perspective. That's not going to work in a court case. You're not going to get to justice. So it leads to actually real problems when we keep deconstructing and pulling apart. And so because we are skeptical about normal, about conformity, where we find that the marginalized don't have a voice in the kind of ranges of acceptability. We have pulled everyone in, but in so doing, we're also neutralizing or nullifying actually what is good and what is truth and what is real in that process. So lots of these things have been really necessary and really important, and they've come from really good places. But because they're not built on anything shared and they're not built on anything corporately agreed, we end up with this Jenga tower that is incredibly unstable. Every bit of truth, every bit of reality, every bit of justice is placed on the individual at the top of the tower. And so it is incredibly unstable and it feels as if it's about to topple. Yeah, and if you played a game of Jenga, you can imagine it, you know it. So the only difference here is we've got three different colours. You've got them all mixed up at the top. As you said, it's top heavy now. And it's like that moment where you're all like, Dad, don't touch the table, don't don't pull that block, because you feel the sense of our perma crisis, this permanent state of crisis, where if you're just going to put one more thing, because it's also a poly crisis and everything's connected, the whole thing could topple at any moment. And so we're living on edge that's just like restless, relentless overwhelming, exhausting moment that we all are experiencing and feeling because everything's interconnected. Everything feels unstable at this moment. And and so we use the Jenga term. We think that is the analogy that best kind of expresses the moment that we're in. Because we see this everywhere in culture and we are seeing lots of these individual moves had a really good heart and they were tapping into something that needed to be addressed. But Actually, their impact, because they weren't properly housed, I suppose, in that overarching narrative, culture and the stories that it's telling ultimately dehumanize us. They deform us. They give us a false story of what it means to be human. And so that is, again, what we have been doing over the last few years is looking, how do we rehouse some of these story blocks and some of these uh, investigations back into a God story that is capable of holding all of these truths so that we are rehumanized and made fully human. Yes, because diagnosis is arguably the easy bit. <laughs> and we've done some of that, but we absolutely want to look at what does it mean to be fully human? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Uh, and one other huge story since we were last on, because it was so long, was actually the death of Queen Elizabeth, um, a very public moment of reflecting on her faith, and then the new king. But one of the analogies, again, that we would use is that around image bearing and the and the king and the queen. Now, neither of us met the queen, I think I'm I right in saying. I never got to meet her, which is quite sad because I think she was amazing. Um, flawed, for sure. And yet, and yet really just served and wanted to do the right thing. But we've often used this analogy that um, if for any reason she was to walk through either of our front doors and just give her little royal wave we would instantly have recognized her. We would have known her without introduction and we would have known that because we have seen countless objects 
that bear her image. We have seen her likeness before. I have met King Charles. Now, I say met. He was at a carol service and walked straight past me looking in entirely the opposite direction. But it counts. I'm claiming it. But once again, we knew he was coming in the room. We were told to expect him, but we weren't shown a picture on the screen and nobody pointed out and said, hello, this is King Charles. We all instantly recognized him because whether it's the tea towels of the queen, whether it's the freshly minted coins of the new king, image bearing objects mean that when you encounter the real image itself, you recognize it because you have seen its likeness before. We are God's image bearing objects. Absolutely. This is right at the core of the project for us, like the right at the center of, of Genesis 1. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And God created us as human beings to be like him, to represent, to represent, to project, to share his nature and his character back into his good creation, to join in what God is doing, to share in his joy over creation. And those first human beings were given what we commonly call the cultural mandate. They come from dust, but they are invited into more. They are to be like God, to do what they see God doing. And so in turn, we have dominion, a word that we're sometimes a little afraid of, like we are to rule and to have power over the rest of creation. We are to steward it and to cultivate it. It's very clear what that means. The Bible then unpacks that. So it's a serving and cultivating role. We are to fill the earth. We are to subdue it, but in a particular way, again, by stewarding it in the same way that God does. And so we are his representatives. And right at the core of this being human question is this understanding of being an image bearer and the God whose image we bear. That. So Next episode, we're going to really tap into what we think that means and what we think that looks like and how we explore some of those truths that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 and how they're being played out in our culture today. But ultimately, hopefully, there are a whole load of questions bubbling up as you listen to this conversation around some of the stories that we're being presented with, some of the conversations that we're surrounded by. Um what are they telling us about what our lives should look like, about who we are and how we are to live, about what it means to be human and how, if we return to the God story, the idea that to be human is to share in God's likeness and in God's nature and in God's character, how does that impact and affect our lives today? It's the question that Sam asks and Sam it. What are human beings that you think about them? What are human beings that you pay attention to them? We think it's absolutely the core of the kind of biblical text and the question that's put there. It's a question our culture is asking and it mirrors that of the psalmist. We have, while we've been away, come up with a being human lens that helps us reflect on this question. It is the definitive answer that you've all been waiting for. And there we go, over promise. <laughs> no, we're going to unpack Way to a little over bit more. Way to over promise. We've, we've thought and reflected a little bit on that. That's something we're going to talk a little bit more about and unpack. We have invited a whole series of guests and friends to come and wrestle with this key question about the God story and the cultural stories, this intersection point that is right on what does it mean to be human? Some of those guests, Joe, who are you going to highlight? Who's who's your favorite? Oh my Some of the goodness. people we're going to talk to. I've had so much fun putting this guest list together. So Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, who's probably is as obsessed with this image bearing idea, if not more so than us, he's coming on. Um, Karen Swallow Pryor, 
who is quite a big name in the US, less familiar here in the UK, but just so good on culture and imagination, narrative, story, uh, cultural conversations, disagreeing well. She's amazing. Christopher Watkin. Biblical critical theory, um, which was one of the kind of big books, literally big books, a tome and fascinating kind of, again, analyzing culture. He is French literature, I think is his area of expertise, really interested in where like people like Derrida and Foucault and a lot of those who are engaged in postmodernism come from, but phenomenal thinker and analyst and such a kind of generous, warm-hearted guy in how he engaged with us and his time. And Rachel Gardner, it was just fantastic. And I love, in a sense, putting those two together. I mean, an incredibly academic, but yet thoughtful with Chris and Rachel, really with the youth workers perspective. But actually, as you listen to them both, you could just see these synergies in what they were thinking, how they were going. I probably wrote more notes during an interview while talking to Rachel Gardner and listening to her. Absolutely phenomenal. She unpacked connection and young people and how we think about this idea of being human. And that's just the start. I mean, yeah, there's so many voices that we're so excited to have coming on. So we're excited that you're going to join us. Welcome back. Season four, Being Human, back every Thursday into your podcast platform of choice. So if you haven't yet, subscribe, rate us, spread the word. You can find out more about what we're up to at, the human, at beinghumanlens.com. Um, but until next time, take care. And God bless. Right, remind me, beinghumanlens.com, just because we have to get this right. I have to get this right. That's fantastic. Good. I'm just re-emphasizing that for listeners because even I can get that one wrong. Well, because you've got an old one, which will yes. still work, beinghumanproject.co.uk, but the new people. one, beinghumanlens.com. And we will be saying more about books, videos, podcasts, and everything to come. We are excited. Hopefully you've got a sense of that. This is it. We're in, we're in launch mode for the next stage of the project. Love having you guys along for the listen. Mm-hmm.